Welcome to the New England Take, WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM Concord, 101.9 FM Manchester, nhtalkradio.com. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead. Be sure, be sure to check out nhtalkradio.com the back episodes of the show, as well as the on-demand versions of our interviews from last week, which included Rachel Sotak, who's a local, area, local uh, graphic designer and brand expert, as well as uh, my latest in the series with the New Hampshire Insurance Department, uh, which was a super interesting interview with uh, one of the directors over there. Uh, this week, I'm excited to have two new guests to the show. This first segment will be with Sarah Scott, who's the Director of Grassroots Operations at Americans for Prosperity in New Hampshire. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So I previously had Ross Connolly on to uh, talk about bail reform with uh, Professor Buzz Schur, which was super interesting. And I wanted to dive into uh, what education freedom accounts are. Uh, it's it's a kind of a new thing to the state of New Hampshire, as far as I'm aware. And uh, there's a lot of questions on it. It's been a hot topic with the, this latest uh, legislative session. Uh, but to start, so we'll dive into, so just to start off with, what, is, what are education freedom accounts? So education freedom accounts are essentially a grant that allows the state portion of education funds to follow the child. So instead of allocating money to a, a building, we're allocating it to each child to make sure that they can have the learning environment that really best suits them. So this money can be spent on things like textbooks, um, online classes, tutors, tuition, special education services, um, computers, uh, any kind of allowable education expenses like that. So it's a... So if you're not happy, basically, with the current situation of going to a public school, it gives you a solution to, to find the funding to either do it at home or go to uh, an alternative school. Yeah, it gives you some flexibility to kind of find something that works better for you and your family. Um, we've seen a lot of people needing more flexibility over the last couple of years, especially because of COVID, whether it's parents that um, had to go into the office every day and the kids couldn't stay home and do remote learning. Those parents were really looking for other options or the kids that... Um, struggled with remote learning or the kids who love remote learning. We've had some kids who, uh, I, I know this is probably the minority of them, but there were some kids who really did love the online learning style and are looking to continue that. And so they can use an EFA for um, online classes. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's definitely the case for a lot of families. And New Hampshire is kind of unique where we have the, the virtual school also, correct? Yeah. Yeah, we've had a lot of interest in uh, VLACs over the past year. I, I don't think they've ever seen this kind of interest in enrollment. And uh, hopefully that'll continue more throughout this because they offer a lot of classes that um, might not be offered at the local district school just because um, of size. I mean, you have some things that are very specific and every school can't teach every single class that one student might be interested in. So this is a cool option to really explore new areas and uh, take some interesting classes. Yeah, the interesting aspect of scaling is is really important. It's the reason why um, for secondary education, for college and such, people end up traveling around the world ultimately for certain programs. And it's something that technology is finally allowing us to start diving into at the state level, which is amazing, especially considering uh, we always talk about underserved populations in the state. I mean, it's a prime example of giving solutions that may not have existed five years ago. Yeah, absolutely, especially in rural New Hampshire, um, some people are driving quite a ways just to get to their school every day. And uh, the opportunities there are just a lot more limited than we might have in southern New Hampshire districts where we have access to things like um, the technical schools, for example. Right. Like We don't have those up in northern New Hampshire. So VLAX is a really great opportunity for those kids. Yeah, definitely. It's, 
it's an interesting alternative. So, like I grew up in uh, in rural central Maine, where I was very lucky to the the private high school was was in my town of China Erskine Academy, which is where I went, and it, it was that or going to the city schools, where it was a totally different population, a different culture compared to what we growing up in a rural town. And students were traveling 40 plus minutes, just if not including the bus, like if they were taking the bus, it could have been a couple hour bus drive. And to have uh, this, this opportunity that we had was great because just because the nature of rural schools and this kind of takes it to the next level, it seems like, where it gives you the opportunity for uh, the private schools that even if there is a, a public option that's close by to be able to take a different path that you may not have otherwise had. Yeah, I think it gives them a lot of opportunity. Um, there are also still a lot of other online platforms that students can use um, and uh, homeschool co-ops, too. I think that's one thing that we've seen popping up more and more, whether it's a homeschool co-op or a pod or a micro school there are new ideas popping up left and right and uh, some of those have worked really well in those rural communities where a group of students maybe five or ten families have just kind of banded together and said we're going to hire a tutor on our own they can use their efa funds for this and uh, those kids can all learn in a group and get a lot of experiences that they might otherwise not have had can you give any specific examples of especially related to that? Because that's something really unique that, like, personally, I haven't had any experience in what that looks like. Sure. So uh, some people are doing this formally through um, one organization in particular called Prenda. Um, so they started out in Arizona, and they recently expanded to New Hampshire this past year. And one of the cool things about Prenda is it's essentially a, a micro school, which is a small group of students that are led by one teacher um, for Prenda. I believe they call them guides. So these are people that are there to kind of encourage them in their learning and help them along their way. Um, but the, the way the classrooms are set up are a lot more hands-on and interactive. And um, one of the interesting things about this is for New Hampshire, we actually have Prenda set up in a couple of different ways. Um, one op option is for local districts to have Prenda pods within their local public school. So if a superintendent here said, you know, I've got um, five or 10 families that are really worried about their children's health. Um, these are immunocompromised kids. They're worried about going into a large setting. Um, I can set up a Prenda pod um, in my own district. So that would essentially just be a subset of the regular public school these kids are going into maybe even a room in the same building, but it's a smaller group uh, and the learning styles are just kind of a little bit more adaptable to each student. Um, the second option is that a parent can set up their own Prenda pod. Um, so a parent can say, I'm really interested in educating my child somewhere else, like at home maybe, but I have no idea where to start. And so they could either sign up to be the, the guide themselves and they go through training for it, or they could, um, find somebody else in the community who's already doing this and reach out to them and essentially sign up like you're signing up for a school um, and you join the community and you drop your kids off or you stay with them and help them learn a couple days a week. Interesting. How long have Education Freedom Counts been around in the state and is this an evolution from something else that was previously around? So Education Freedom Accounts came into existence um, just uh, this past fall. Um, so this is really the first year we're, we're seeing anything like this. Uh, they've existed in other states for a number of years, but um, it wasn't something that had been implemented here in New Hampshire until legislation that was passed uh, last June. 
So it's something that people have been talking about here in the state for a long time. Um, we were always coming up with kind of new ideas for how can we customize kids' education and give them more options and kind of make the system more flexible to work for them. Um, and so uh, we, we looked at a lot of other states around us, saw a lot of issues with how they set things up, but also the good experiences they had. And I think that the, the bill that we passed here in New Hampshire was a really great compromise of fixing the issues uh, the other states experienced while trying to uh, expand upon the success that they had. Speaking of success that maybe we're seeing already in the state, are there any examples of uh, families taking advantage of it or communities taking advantage of the, these funds? Yeah, we heard um, there was a hearing this past week that dealt with the uh, Education Freedom Accounts bill. And um, we heard from a number of families about kind of their experiences with it over the last year. And I know I had heard a lot of these stories um, just since this past fall, but I was still really struck by just the sheer number of, of families that are taking advantage of this and kind of their stories. Um, I think a lot of us think about, you know, the kids that don't really sit still well in class and they wanted an environment where they can get up and move around more. And we kind of think this is what the program is for. But it, really the, the students that are using this, their, their struggles are much more severe than just that. Um, so we heard from one family who uh, there were some family issues. It sounds like the children had uh, emotional, mental issues and they were taken in by their grandparents. Um, and this family said, look, these kids are struggling in school. They, they hate going to class. They're failing. Um, they're dealing with bullying. They're dealing with significant emotional trauma. And uh, the Education Freedom Accounts allowed them to put the kids into a smaller classroom environment and continue to kind of get them the help that they needed. And these kids have gone from hating school, being miserable, failing all their classes to being um, one of the best students in their class, essentially. It sounds like they've, they've really grown a lot. Um, we've also heard from a lot of people who have had students with special needs. Um, I think yeah. that, I know that really, it, it is a big struggle for a lot of families in the state that have these students with special needs, um, especially during COVID, where a lot of those services required being in person and where you couldn't be in person, a lot of those families were desperately looking for other alternatives. Um, so it's been really cool to hear how some of those students have used EFAs for um, special education services, or it sounds like a lot of them have used them for uh, programs to do home education. So it could be used on like classes or therapies uh, and things like that. We heard from a lot more parents than I expected, actually, in terms of how they've used this for their uh, special needs ch children. Yeah, this always been... Uh, a weird place for for students that because you because you gotta go to your school district is the traditional way you where you live determines what school you go to and especially I'd imagine in rural communities where they like they don't have a real special ed program they may have one person that does it part time and kind of has to finagle everything else like my mom actually does that she she's uh, she's on special ed work she has technology work at the school. Uh, up in Maine, and it's it's always been this weird spot where they need to find a way to make sure these students meet the standards that they need to do to make it through school. And ultimately, 
it doesn't really work that way. That like they need to get have a realistic way of of um, how they're going to exist in the world. So it, it could be a different way of just having social skills as opposed to making sure they know how to do certain math equations, for example, as someone that's in a different learning path. And this this sounds like a great way to kind of make sure that these students aren't left behind. Yeah, I think uh, it sounds like from what these families have said, they've they've provided a lot of opportunities that these kids didn't have. Um, one mom in particular mentioned that her child had been expelled. Um, so he had a number of different issues that caused an episode one day where he had lashed out. And so the student was expelled and she said, I don't know where else to send him. Um, and so using an EFA, she was able to kind of afford the materials she needed to try to educate him at home and make sure he was keeping up um, with his peers as well as just really providing that emotional stability that you might not get in a chaotic, more chaotic environment. Just more students um, can often be a, a kind of a trigger for some of these kids. So we, we've spent the last almost 13 minutes keep talking all the positives, all the good <laughs> things. I, I in, in theory, my, my libertarian heart loves everything about this. But uh, what's it look like for funding for the public education uh, system when when you're looking at these funds are being used for for these students? So I think one of the common misconceptions about this uh, is that it's taking money away from the local school district. And one of the things that I think people miss is that right now, if I was a student in um, public school here and I decided that I am going to go to the private school that's just down the road, um, right now that state portion of education funding doesn't go to that local public school anymore. Um, so if I leave that public school for whatever reason, they're not going to get that state portion of education funding. Um, so right now, we're actually not taking any money away from the local public school that they wouldn't have already been losing. Um, so if we have uh, some districts that are, sorry about that, um, if we have some districts who are losing more and more students to an education freedom accounts program, um, it kind of gives them an incentive at the same time to look at why are these students leaving? What can we do to improve? Um, how can we attract more students to come back? And the Education Freedom Accounts program actually has a phase-out approach. So the district is not losing that state portion of education funding all in the same year. Um, yeah. If I were to not take an EFA and I just said, I'm going over to the private school, right now that district is going to lose that money much quicker than they would if that student took an education freedom account. Um, so there's a phase out that's built into the EFA program. I can't remember if it's a four year phase out, um, but it kind of whittles down the amount that the district is getting so that it's not all at once. Um, it introduces economics into a, an industry that economics has rarely ever been able to apply to except for because uh, usually people move to an area because of a job and housing and schools is an important aspect to it. it but if you already live there, like for us, like we, we, we lived in Concord before we had our kid and, and now we're go, okay, well he's got to go here. Fortunately, been very fortunate. The Concord school district's fantastic. And we, we love his teachers and everything he's had, but it, it would be a big upset for us to uproot ourselves, go somewhere else, especially in this crazy housing marketplace that I've had many discussions with people about. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a really great opportunity for parents to have a lot more say in um, how things are, are going with the schools um, and gives parents a little bit more accountability for that. Um, and I think it gives some districts really the chance to shine. 
Um, there are a lot of fantastic districts here. We've got great teachers um, and administrators here. And having a program like this where we can look at a school and say, hey, they're not having any students leaving. What are they doing here? How can we incorporate that in other schools and, um, and just kind of grow the, the system as a whole to make sure that we're improving all of the education and not just we're having one district over here that's super successful while some kids are stuck in a district that's failing. Yeah, and COVID obviously was a huge impact on the success, I'd imagine, of the onset of this program. I mean, with, with so many school districts uh, locking down what they want with uh, masking, uh, there's t- certain school districts have uh, always have the political talk around vaccines. And it's like, are we going to require vaccines for certain things? Is it legal? Are there going to be court cases with regards to it? And this basically gave a lot of parents the opportunity to say, screw this, we're punching out of this situation entirely and moving on. Once again, going to the economics of education in the state, I mean, you you, you got to serve your, your clientele ultimately. Yeah, one, um, one surprise was really just the demographic of people uh, who – are wanting their kids to wear masks at school because they have mm-hmm. family who's immunocompromised. And I didn't expect that that demographic would be taking EFAs um, at such a high rate as they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that they, that group in particular has really been increasing, especially as some schools are getting rid of their mask policies. Um, that group of people is saying, hey, it's just not safe for my child to go into this environment. I need another option. Um, and I think that's really interesting to see. It's definitely not what I think a lot of people anticipated at the beginning of this. Is there a, um, a certain point during this program where there's going to be some sort of reporting with regards to how the program's done? So this is obviously a huge thing with uh, any large-scale program like this is what's the data look like? What did this pay off? Did this actually improve the results for the students on, in any way we can analyze? So I know that there are going to be some reports. Um, I think that they're still discussing this year, actually, in the legislature, some of the reports and how that will be done. Um, The Department of Education has a number of those records already. Um, I'm actually not sure how much of the information is going to be public and how much is not. Um, Some of it might actually already be out there. But um, I think that there's a lot of discussion around the accountability piece of this. And I think we'll start to see some of that play out later this year um, because essentially the the accountability is similar to the options we already have for uh, those educational environments. So if I'm a student who's taking an education freedom account and I go to a private school, uh, I'm going to continue the same testing that that private school already does. Um, So we will see those kids are going to be going through that same process as the regular private school students. Um, If I am using an EFA to do home education, um, the requirements for that are actually the same as students who are homeschooled, which is still a a different subset of students, but the um, assessment requirements are the same. So I think by the end of this year, we will see that uh, students are fulfilling the assessment requirements and staying at grade level. Um, And it'll be really interesting to see kind of the um, increase or drop off that we have over this year as things kind of return more to a, I guess I would say like a new normal. Um, And as districts are kind of going back to how things were, what stays the same? What changes? Are these kids going to be returning to pre-pandemic educational environments or are they going to be staying where they are? 
Sarah Scott, grassroots operations, uh, director of grassroots operations over at Americans for Prosperity from New Hampshire. Check out americansforprosperity.org to learn more about that organization. Um, personally, I'm a fan of a lot of their work, and I suggest you check them out. Um, don't go anywhere, Sarah. I'm going to get you for a couple more minutes right here on the show. You're listening to the New England Take and WKXL, and we'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the New England Take and WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM, and nhstockradio.com. I'm your host, A.J. Kierstead. Continuing my conversation here with Sarah Scott. She's the Director of Grassroots Operations at Americans for Prosperity of New Hampshire. So I have a conservative libertarian organization like Americans for Prosperity, and you do grassroots work. That has to be a unique thing. Cause it, when you think grassroots organization, traditionally in the mainstream, it, it's a lot of the, the left-wing organizations that primarily get, get the attention. You think, uh, especially the last uh, year and a half with Black Lives Matter, it's like the the – the big thing that stands out for everyone. What's it like for for someone on this side of the aisle doing that? So I just kind of want to give like a quick example of this past week, because this was something that was really impactful to me and just kind of highlights um, the importance of, of doing this kind of work. Um, so before we had the hearing on repealing the Education Freedom Accounts Program, we gathered a group of families and activists in our um, in our local office in Manchester um, to kind of put together uh, signs and testimony um, and prepare everybody for the hearing. And I wasn't initially sure who we were going to get showing up. Um, kind of figured, you know, it'll be a lot of the same people I already know that tend to show up to these things. Um, but it was really great to see the the parents who came out that I had never met before and to hear their stories. It's just really impactful to hear what these families have gone through and how this has changed their life. Um, a lot of times I think we think about these issues in terms of politics and this side wins and that side loses and now this side wins. Um, but And we kind of forget the direct impact that this has on people's lives. Um, we spoke to one dad who had uh, a couple of students who were having a tough time in the regular school and then he ended up getting custody of his his nephew um, unexpectedly and kind of talking about uh, what his family had gone through and how he had no idea how he was going to provide for his family essentially he knew that um, especially one of the children couldn't go back to the public school but he said honestly I have no idea how I could afford to do this and so just hearing how this changed his life. And he said, I, I don't have to worry now. I know that my kids are going to be okay. I can afford to feed them and keep them in the school that they're saying, please don't take me out of. Um, I think as a parent, that would be really tough, especially as a lot of kids changed schools during uh, COVID last year. Um, for whatever reason, they, they went to a new environment. And when your kid is saying, please, I don't, I like where I am. I like my friends. I like my teacher. Um, it changes tough for kids, um, even if they're going back to an environment that did work for them, any kind of change like that can be really traumatic. And as the parent having to say, I don't know if I can afford to keep you here while still feed and clothe you. Um, so kind of hearing these stories and knowing that the, the impact of the work that we did over the last year, uh, has been a really cool experience. So we've got about a minute and a half left. Just if people want to get involved with, with your organization or in general, just uh, grassroots organization for political efforts, what should people do? 
So I would uh, definitely recommend reaching out to us. Um, you can uh, look at our Facebook page, Americans for Prosperity New Hampshire. Um, we'll usually post a lot of our activities that we have and you can get involved, show up at an event. Um, if you're interested in getting involved in an issue, I would just say reach out to one of these grassroots organizations. If, um, if they don't work on the issue that you're interested in, I'm sure they can connect you with uh, another group who does. I know I've, I've heard from people all the time who are interested in a particular issue that we just don't get involved in. And I'm happy to connect you to uh, whatever that group might be. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sarah. Great. Thanks for having me on. Sarah Scott, Director of Grassroots Operations at Americans for Prosperity, New Hampshire. You can learn more about that organization at americansforprosperity.org. They're also on all the social media, so be sure to give them a follow. You're listening to New England Take and WKXL. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead. Be sure to follow me, too. New England Take, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the whole nine yards. You can also find the New England Take on your favorite podcast platform. We're also playing around with live streaming. This is my first week of doing it, so big thanks for Sarah for dealing with me getting this rolling and going, oh, God, what buttons do I have to press? And uh, Anne-Marie Timmons for WKXL in the morning uh, did that with me last night. So definitely check out our social media feeds for NH Talk Radio as well as uh, the New England Takes. We're going to keep doing this, and hopefully it pays off in the end. So thanks so much for listening, everyone. We'll be right back. We'll be back next week. <laughs>